Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My bad. My good, okay. Part two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, July 1st is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. We've been talking about this uh, interview all day. Vincent Normant, uh, Chief Marketing Officer for Parkway Dispensary and the owner of the Marijuana Hall of Fame. Yes, the Marijuana Hall of Fame in Las Vegas, Nevada, that one day will have me in there enshrined if I have anything to do with it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Vincent Normant, welcome back to the show, sir. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, Looking forward to definitely looking forward to inducting you into the marijuana hall. Oh my goodness, I cannot wait for that. All right, we have a lot of topics we want to talk about. Uh, have a whole list of them. We're going to take them one by one, uh, and we'll close with a brief discussion of the NBA. Folks may not know this, but Vincent Normand uh, is a former athlete, big time basketball fan, and uh, worked in the marketing uh, end of things uh, in basketball-related industries. So he knows a thing or two about basketball. So we'll have a little basketball conversation. But we have uh, many other topics to get to before we do that. Uh, So, Vincent, uh, imagine my surprise. We had already uh, arranged for this interview. I was looking forward to it. I had promoted on the show. I get my Sun Times home delivered, my beloved bright one home delivered. I open it up, and what do I see on page six uh, with a Tommy Shuba story? A picture of Vincent Norman with this super cool T-shirt on that looks like looks like a marijuana leaf uh, T-shirt uh, right there. It uh, is the marijuana Hall of Fame logo, uh, and by the way, certified registered registered trademark. Thank you, Library of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> so don't steal his idea, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, all right, and uh, the headline is another pot postponement. Good job by Tommy Shuba. Uh, Tom is one of the hardest working reporters in the city of Chicago. We give him a lot of love on the show and a nickname. Tommy too joins Shuba. Uh, and uh, we've talked about this the last time we were on the show, the delays that uh, dispensaries are getting from the state in terms of uh, the license to open up. More licenses delayed indefinitely due to COVID-19. Vincent, why don't you give us the update on what's going on? Yeah, so, um, you know, J.B. Krishna, uh, the governor, came out and uh, signed an executive order to uh, delay the process of craft growth indefinite. And, um, again, it's, you know, just another uh, low uh, blow to uh, minorities who are trying to uh, get the craft uh, facilities up and running, uh, made a, you know, huge financial commitment, uh, in obtaining, uh, rental space, uh, either rent or just rent to own. And, uh, you know, ourselves, we spent over thousands of dollars. And, and so it seems like that bill is going to keep, continue to grow as we sit back and wait. And, um, you know, it's just unacceptable. 
In, the, in, in Tom Shuba's article, it says, Norman said he and his partners already shelled out more than $20,000 for a down payment on a proposed craft cultivation center in Broadview. Now the group will have to continue making monthly rent payments with no assurance it will get one of the coveted licenses. Uh, talk a little bit more about that, Vincent. Yeah, so, you know, um, again, you know, we're in the process, uh, and I'm sure, you know, other uh, applicants as well are researching our potential dispensary locations um, <clears throat> to go along with, um, you know, the craft grow because we want to be fully integrated. So, um, you know, part of that is uh, drafting of architect plans, um, you know, interviewing, um, you know, and offering from our investors looking to invest in the cannabis industry. So we, you know, we're right now seeking to raise, you know, uh, 1.2 million per dispensary, and so that's high end as well, you know, because that's going to be our, obviously our supplies and products coming from the uh, crab grow industry into the dispensary. Until then, we will have to do, depend on already established craft grow uh, operating facilities here in the state of Illinois. Uh, one come to mind, maybe Cresco Lab or GTI, and there are other ones as well. So. Um, again, it's just a huge, uh, you know, mounting uh, financial bill that's, that's taking place. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're optimistic, um, you know, you know going to continue to move forward and um, just look at the system and put pressure on uh, Springfield and the state to do the right thing. Now, Vincent, uh, the, the governor of the state says that the delay is caused by the COVID-19 outbreak, the pandemic. How, what's the correlation between the COVID-19 outbreak and the inability to issue licenses to dispensaries? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that I uh, talked to Tom about uh, when we were just uh, having a conversation and in interview for his article, you know, my thing was <clears throat> I expected this. And the reason why is um, if you think about it, in you know, the governor just rolled back that they're going to be making an announcement for issuing out dispensary license in uh, the month of July, which we're now entering July 1. And then also you're going to be able to issue out Crab Grow in that same month when it clearly has been a debacle uh, over the last three months. It just didn't make sense. So this announcement uh, from the governor did not come as a surprise to me, and I'm sure probably others. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, like, again, you know, it was like expected. And it's now, you know, uh, we need to really uh, um, address this uh, fully. And, and I uh, encourage all of the applicants to really start being a voice to this because uh, the word indefinitely <laughs> that, you know, that in itself can be pushed all the way into the month of what. October, November, and then now we're talking about entering to the, the winter months, and clearly, you know, uh, production and uh, development and construction really goes down during that time. Yeah, I, I just, <clears throat> I didn't see a, 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 a very specific explanation as to why the coronavirus a pandemic is forcing this delay. You know what I'm saying? So I could see like, well, the, the coronavirus pandemic is forcing us uh, to delay opening up bars so people can see, where people will sit face to face, and there's an easy uh, opportunity to transmit 
the disease. I can understand that. I just do not see the correlation between issuing a license and the pandemic. So my first instinct, born by years, uh, Vincent, I must admit this, of skepticism as to what government is up to is that they just invented the pandemic as a reason to uh, delay. Maybe I'm being unfair. If I'm being unfair to the state of Illinois, please correct me right now. Am I being unfair to the state of Illinois? No, I agree. I don't think you've been unfair at all. You know, last time I was on the show, you know, I I did mention that uh, the powers to be, uh, just like he signed an executive order to, uh, the, the delaying process, he could have signed an executive order to uh, initiate uh, some license uh, immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, how that would have played out, I'm not sure. You know, people talk about, well, if you do that, you know, then people going to uh, file a lawsuit. But here we go. We're, we're in a delay. You know, I, I think people should be ready to you know, up and running to file uh, a lawsuit if necessary because, again, this is holding us back. And, and let's just talk about, you know, the systematic system embedded. You know, uh, this in legal cannabis, in the legal cannabis industry itself, you know, um, you know, we look at we point to the fact that there are no minority owned representation right now in the state of Illinois for craft grow or dispensary. And so this has already taken place years ago. And so, uh, you know, even though, you know, the social equity thing is supposed to be a step in the right direction, um, and like I said, I was very optimistic about it, and, and I know my team as well. But now, you know, it, it's starting to be uh, redundant with uh, these de- delays and uncertainties. And COVID-19 is just an excuse. You know, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with nothing, especially in the fact that these dispensaries are making a lot of money during COVID-19. They haven't closed down. Production hasn't stopped. So... Yeah, and I I would urge the state to pick up the pace because, as I say this all the time in the show, whenever we do one of these interviews about uh, marijuana, cannabis, reefer, whatever you want to call it, the whole point, as far as I'm concerned, of legalizing it was to eradicate the inequities that existed between the enforcement of the law. So, as I always point out, black people got arrested for doing something that white people did all the time. And so the whole point as far as I'm concerned, maybe other people in the state of Illinois, Vincent, didn't see it as the point. But to me, the main reason to legalize marijuana is to just get rid of those inequities and those unfairnesses from the get-go. Uh, and so one way to, like a compensation, reparations, I call it reefer reparations, uh, would be <laughs> to have uh, black-owned dispensaries. And lo and behold, we don't have them. So I cannot... There's two points I urge. Urge the state to hurry up and uh, stop the delay and issue the licenses so black-owned operators get into business. And two, make it legal on a federal level. Okay, because your hands will be tied, Vincent, and you know this as well as anybody, by the fact that it's illegal at the federal level. That hurts you in terms of getting banks to, uh, you know, set up accounts with you and, uh, get loans, et cetera, and so forth, and you still have to deal with the possibility that the the drug enforcement people come down your throat. So there are some pr- problems on the federal level as well. Yes, you're right. You know, um, that's why, like, the urgency, you know, right now, with you know, there's a, there's a very small window uh, then 
for uh, getting me getting the attention of these investors uh, to come on board. And again, uh, can you blame them? They're proceeding with cautious, especially with all the the chaos that's going on with the, the Illinois licensing. Uh, you know, being awarded from dispensary to craft room now being delayed. And so, you know, we're trying to uh, keep the pace up and uh, let the, uh, you know, potential investors know that we're here. Um, you know, we're still doing the work. Um, we have our um, facility kicked out in uh, Broadview and uh, Broadview, Illinois. And so all these things are taking place. We're still up and running and working towards the process. Now we're just waiting on JB, which I campaigned hard for, you know, for governor. And uh, I'm really, you know, like, man, I'm, you know, do I need to pull my vote back? <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, uh, this is, you know, uh, the onus is on him. Uh, he's a leader here uh, in the state. And, uh, you know, I know I'm going to be uh, sending out uh, some information in, in regard to that, um, the fact that uh, we campaign for him, that, you know, do the right thing or, you know, maybe, maybe you don't need a second term, you know. Um, but the politics of dancing is that's the way it is in Illinois. <clears throat> you know, uh, anyone out there uh, that's interested in investing in Parkway Dispensary, uh, uh, we would love for you to contact us. Again, we're out here doing the work. Um, you know, if it's okay, Ben, you know, I, I would like to you know, give my email address, uh, the company email address, they can email us if they're interested. Go ahead. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so, so invest at Parkway dash dispensary.com invest at parkway dash dispensary.com again you know we're here uh, we're here you know uh, for the people of Illinois Um, we also understand you know our counterparts and our colleagues as well that's applicants that's uh, trying to get their craft code license dispensary license as well minority owned and um, you know together we need to just uh I have, out of fairness, I must point this out before we move on, uh, that J.B. Pritzker's opponent in the 2018 uh, gubernatorial election was the sitting governor, Bruce Reiner, who was a strong opponent to legalizing marijuana. Uh, he was a strong opponent. So we wouldn't be where we are uh, if Bruce Rana was reelected. We made fun of him all the time, Vincent, for he went on some radio station in southern Illinois uh, and said that uh, legalizing marijuana, he would battle it to the very end. He was sticking to that one. Uh, and he was defeated. An overwhelming majority of people in the state of Illinois uh, want marijuana legalized. And uh, it was finally legalized. But come on, J.B. Pritzker. Let's get this uh, dispensary licenses inequities taken care of. Uh, it also says in the article, Vincent, that Vincent Norman, a Englewood native who served in the U.S. Marines. I have forgotten you served in the Mar- in the Marines. Oorah, oorah for all my fellow Marines out there. Oorah, <laughs> oorah, <laughs> semper fi. So tell the story. How did uh, how did you uh, wind up in the Mar- in the Marines? What was the circumstances that led to that? <clears throat> Well, you know, I, I received a scholarship in football and, uh, you know, you know how you want to, uh, <clears throat> you know, your award is something really good and great at that. And this was my free ride for education. Um, but, you know, I was a good player, but I, my passion wasn't as much as uh, 
keep wanting to uh, explore uh, opportunities as a, an entrepreneur and just in general. So, but I went and, uh, and so it, unluck has it, uh, I broke my jaw um, uh, in college and uh, it was a huge setback and gave me time to kind of reflect. And I said, you know, you know, I'm going to take a different path. So I wrapped up uh, a little of my time there at, at the university and uh, Marine recruiter was already recruiting me in high school. And so I gave him a call and I said, you know, um, <clears throat> right now I'm, I'm medically induced with a, a fractured jaw, but once it heals, you know, I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps. And he was like, okay, let me get all your paperwork together. And, you know, and so um, a few months went by and uh, I made the pledge. And that's how I ended up in the United States Marine Corps. I left college and went there. And, and how many years were you in the Marines? Six years. Six years. Six years of service. Six years of service. Uh, And so did did you have an aversion to the type of training uh, you received, or did you find yourself able to go along with it? Uh, In other words, are you the kind of person who just naturally rebels or resists people who tell you what to do, or are you the kind of person who felt comfortable with a very disciplined regimen? Um, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with a discipline, uh, discipline re- regiment as far as, uh, you know, especially um, being on a football team. You get that, you know, with the coaches and the training and you know, so forth. Uh, what I'm not comfortable with is, uh, is the fact that when it's not uh, um, the right training, the right discipline, you know, uh, yes, I, I would question that in, in a heartbeat, you know, and that's just part of my uh, entrepreneurial spirit and, and, and just um, the way I was brought up with my parents and stuff. So, you know, uh, you can, you know, tell me to go this way, but, you know, explain it a little bit more in detail and if it makes sense, then let's go. If it doesn't, I'm going to question it. Is the, the Marines the type of institution where the trainers uh, are in the habit of explaining things when asked to explain things, or is it, <laughs> are they the type of people say, "Nobody asked for your opinion on anything. Just shut up and do it." The latter. You don't get that opportunity. <laughs> you're in the Marine Corps, you know, and, and you think about it, you know, you really don't have time. If you're in combat, and you say, "Let's attack that hill," you know, in a war situation, you have to attack that hill. You, you know, you really don't have time to be explaining to uh, thousands of troops. Uh, in the platoon, you know, what's the reason behind it? You know, everybody just got to have, uh, you know, faith in uh, the leadership and we got to go and, you know, serve our country and we got to make it happen. So, so in, in that instance, you have to go. <laughs> so when the uh, drill instructors uh, were giving you orders, how did you resist the temptation to say, F you? You know, where, how did you get in the mindset not to fight back when you were getting those strict orders uh, from the your instructors? Well, you know, if you, it's it's like me, you know, I, if I know that uh, there is a there's an issue with that order, you know, if I know that, then I'm sure the drill instructor knows it as well. And so, you know, I just raised the question. You know, and, and usually, 
when there's some mis- misinformation, uh, usually the leadership kind of uh, uh, backtrack a little bit, so to speak. Um, you know, and so, you know, I, 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 I challenge, you know, and question, and it's not, again, if it makes sense, with a real explanation, then we go for it. If not, you know, um, I'll, I'll take, the, I'll take the, you know, the consequences that goes along with uh, not following order. When, uh, as a Marine, uh, as a person who went through six years of being in the Marines, did you have the reaction that uh, some Marines had when Colin Kaepernick took, Kaepernick took the knee that he was insulting the flag and the military? <clears throat> Not at all, you know. Um, and, I, and I truly believe, probably, if you if you poll, you know, military uh, servicemen, veterans, you probably get. 80, 85 percent easy that would uh, have side with uh, Colin Kaepernick. I, I know for myself, I clearly understand what the knee was all about. It was not disrespecting the flag. It was not disrespecting our country. Um, this was just a you know curveball being thrown at the general public just to avoid uh, addressing the issues. Uh, probably, probably, I mean, police brutality and. Uh, injustice that was going on uh, throughout you know, the U.S. and people just didn't want to address it. And a lot of times, uh, our white counterparts looked away uh, because they just couldn't believe it. You know, it's, when you're not in it, or you're not being uh, chastised or uh, or being uh, followed, detained, then uh, you seem to you, you tend to believe that this is not happening for real. So. I was fully in support of. Matter of fact, when I was in Atlanta, I took a knee in front of the stadium, and um, in, in solidarity of Kaepernick. This was a few years ago when he was still playing. Uh, yeah, this was like 2017. 2000, yeah, around 2017. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. He was he was on his way out. Being, you know, pretty much blackballed him. So Roger Cadell is going to make the full apology, right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. Things. We're going to get into that uh, when we talk a little about the NBA and Adam Silver. Uh, we'll get into the whole, you know, how sports is, uh, some of the attitudes of these, is the executives in the professional sports leagues have changed dramatically since the video of uh, George Floyd was released of him getting murdered. And I, say, I always make a point, Vincent, of saying, it was the video. It was not the murder of George. It was the release of the video when people got to see it. That was the uh, the, the distinguishing point. Do you understand what I'm what I mean by that? Exactly. You know, without the video, without the um, the outcry, and clearly, clearly, we all saw the same thing: white, black, Asian. It didn't matter where you came from, what walk of life you came from. We all saw. A public murder, a public lynching of an African American male by a white cop. So, and to my point, you know, um, it, I even like to take the word "white" off the cop name, you know, and just say um, that just a cop in general that uh, did not need to be on the uh, the force in the first place. 
um, someone that had a history of, um, you know, injustice toward African-American uh, males, uh, the record uh, that he had um, in the police force, he should have been fired years ago. So, you know, it was just, again, uh, we all saw the same thing. And I think that's why it, hit, it really brought awareness, more awareness. And like you just said, it really made the athletes, uh, African-American athletes, really stop and take a look at, you know, do I continue to conform to the owners and their policies, or do I take a stand? Like Kaepernick, it might cost me my job, it might cost me finances, but at the end of the day, you know, I'll have some, uh, I'll be able to sleep at night and I'll have a little bit more clarity in my life because uh, wrong is wrong, right is right. <laughs> so I think it really woke up the athletes, obviously. They all started banding together. They felt, they realized how much power they had. And they just split out to the owners that we won't play if there's not an apology. We won't play if things don't change. Yeah. Somehow or other, in this, at this moment in time, Vincent, that message came through. And I'm contrasting it with the moment in time in the uh, early part of the Trump administration where Trump was ranting and raving against black athletes who took the knee, called them sons of bitches, uh, sent Pence down to Indianapolis so he could walk out of the stadium. Vice President Pence walked out of the stadium. He only went to the game so he could walk out of the game when he saw players take the knee. And but s something has changed. This The reaction back in 2017 with the owners of the uh, NFL teams was saying, well, we may be sympathetic to the notion that uh, police be out of control. We may be sympathetic to that, but as uh, Jerry Jones, the owner of the uh, Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys, said, you're going to tow that line. No knees, tow that line. And uh, the NFL took this like, stand on that there would be no kneeling. Something changed this time. And Goodell, you're right. Total 180. Like, I respect the uh, our players. Power. The talk, power change. Talk about that. The power. The, the players, you know, I mean, when you have your marquee players taking a stance, being a voice, see, that wasn't, that wasn't happening. <laughs> and, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of funny, right, if you think about it. It took the younger players who weren't even in the league in Kaepernick to take a league. Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, uh, Jackson. Uh, these players weren't even in the league. And the turnaround to watch, for them, I think the perspective of them watching what took place as college athletes and then they're coming into the league, I think they already had their mind made up that, you know, we're not going to allow this to happen. And so this incident with Floyd, uh, was clearly a power shift. But the players knew that they had the power and the owners did not. <clears throat> and that's what changed. You know, uh, they all banded together and they got on uh, social media and, and they reached out to uh, Roger Cadell and they sent a message. And I don't think it was, it took them an hour and a half. They, 
to run down in the basement and apologize. <laughs> to then come back and apologize to Tabernacle. We got it wrong. We was wrong for. Then he got. Then he came back with a third one. Uh, owners can. Somebody needs to hire Colin Kaepernick back. Now just think about that. You work for an organization or owners. Do you think that the people that you work for, you have power over them? Obviously not. But. That was the, the dog and pony show. Roger Cadell telling the guys who pay his check, who writes his check, that pays his salary, hey, y'all need to hire Colin Kaepernick back. Again, you know, a shift in power. And uh, they started to do the dancing instead of the football player. Refreshing. Very refreshing. <laughs> I would love been a fly in the wall in two instances Vincent back in 2017 a fly in the wall when the owners were convening and meeting to discuss about this issue and to hear the defiant talk which I know there was don't you bend to these players this is dis- don't you let them tell us how to run our our game you know and then contrast that talk to whatever Goodell told them this year you follow me, like, yeah, gentlemen. Th- I can, I, yeah, go ahead. Let me let me say this. <laughs> I, I can. <laughs> so I'm the fly on the wall. The first conversation is what you just said, guys. We cannot allow this player to kneel at every game, and all this going to do is cause solidarity. And before you know it, they'll be running. The teams, we can't allow that to happen. So, as James Baldwin said, let's make an example out of this black man. You know what I wanted to say, the black man. Yes. Um, and I think that's what it was. And through the emails and through the conference call, conference calls, and uh, everything else, clearly this was a black ball situation, and it was in uh, solidarity and unity amongst the owners. And uh, Roger Cadell Roger was, you know, the, the puppet master orchestrating mm-hmm. what the owners wanted. Reverse, now, Roger Cadell was like, shit, oh shit, listen guys, we're losing, we're, getting, we're about to, oh my God, <laughs> we're about to lose our top football athlete. Yeah. We've got... Patrick Mahorn, which was the MVP of the Super Bowl, and a host of other famous act I mean athletes saying that hey, they're gonna walk. They're not playing. If we do not reverse the decision, if we do not acknowledge black lives does matter, if we do not acknowledge the police brutality and the injustice that's going on in the United States of America. If we do not denounce President Donald Trump, we're going to be in trouble. And that's what changed. And so the owners, you know, the probably was, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. We're in love with big guys. You either want to leave or you don't. Make a decision. And uh, they made the right decision. Well, as At I, the wrong time, but yes. they made the right decision. 
it took him all, a long time to make the right decision. And I, I cannot resist this. I do this all the time. Whenever this conversation comes up, I point out to our Chicago listeners, because we're predominantly a Chicago show, I point out, if you want to realize how fierce the opposition in the NFL was to Colin Kaepernick and to having him in the league after he took that knee, exhibit A to prove that point is that the Chicago Bears paid Mike Glennon $18 million to be quarterback rather than hire Colin Kaepernick. Vincent, I don't know if you're a football fan anymore, if you gave it up a long time ago when you uh, got injured back in college. But let me just tell you this. Mike Glennon is a terrible quarterback. They gave him $18 million because they didn't want to sign Colin Kaepernick. So that's how strong the opposition was to Colin Kaepernick. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. And to add to that, <clears throat> let's look at the resume. Man went to the Super Bowl. He took his team to the Super Bowl on his back. Um, a proven winner, a proven uh, Super Bowl quarterback, and yet and still, here this guy is. And I don't even know the name. Let's just say 18 million. 18 million guy. <laughs> million dollar guy. Yeah. Instead of hiring uh, Colin Kaepernick. And, and so that is Exhibit A. I would like to hear what's Exhibit B. <laughs> Well, Exhibit B, uh, hmm, I have to think about Exhibit I I would say Mike Glennon, that's his name, would be Exhibits A, B, C, D, and E. But uh, uh, I'm just speaking as a frustrated Bears fan there. Uh, you, you were talking about uh, what happened in Minnesota and what the world saw, and I sent you an article that I found fascinating. Uh, Derek Chauvin is the name of the police officer who actually put his uh, knee on George Floyd's neck. Uh, there was a young African-American police officer who was holding down George Floyd, uh, and uh, King is his name. Uh, and there was an interesting article in the New York Times. It was a kind of heartbreaking article. This young man was on his third day with the Minneapolis police force, Vincent. His third day. A rookie. A rookie. A rookie. And he had been trained by Derek Chauvin. And when I read that article... Vincent, and I told you this already. When I read that article, I thought, oh, my God, this is reverse training day. And the movie Training Day, as you know, Denzel Washington is a corrupt cop who teaches Ethan Hawke. That's right. Isn't that the actor you told me? He plays the white guy. Yeah. Teaches the young kid mm -hmm. to be corrupt. Uh, and in Minnesota, it was Derek Chauvin who somehow or other – they imparted, they took this young man who was relatively idealistic and uh, had friends who were in the Black Lives Matter movement. His sisters, his siblings were in the Black Lives Matter movement. Somehow or other, they got to him. And Vincent, that was just so profound. Uh, it sat with me for a long while that they flipped the guy. It, do you understand what I'm saying? They, they, it, like they turned him into something that he wasn't. Right. Correct. Exactly. And he was not in, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's the old adage, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, a code of, you know, that, you know, the police have or just in general organizations, groups, white supremacists, you name it. Um, I think he was in a no-win situation in a rookie cop 
uncertainties. I had to follow a veteran cop. This is the way we do it. This is the way it's done. <clears throat> if you go against what we do, then you are not one of us. And this is not a black and white thing. This is the code of the police department. When you have certain corrupt cops having the opportunity to train a rookie, which <clears throat> should never happen. <clears throat> so I think this young man, you know, and I'm not making excuses for him, I think he's under a lot of pressure to either conform or, you know, maybe get uh, some accusations, you know, put on them uh, or, you know, distancing uh, the other police officers from him. And so um, he was in a no-win situation, you know, and, and you think about it and it goes back to uh, the NFL. We had these players that wanted to do the right thing and several players were taking the knee. But when they saw what happened to cabinet, and, you know, they gut feeling was, am I going to be able to feed my family? Am I going to be able to keep my job? And so there's a lot of painful thoughts, a lot of uncertainties when you have to make a decision, even when you know it's not the right decision, but you're making it, you know, in a, a survival mode of trying to make sure that you can provide for your family. And uh, that's a tough dichotomy, but, you know, um, until you're in those people's shoes, you really don't know. And then, like I said, for myself, you know, I've been in situations where I had to walk away for something that were, uh, just wasn't right. And uh, I was okay with that. And everybody's not built for that. You know, I've been blackballed myself in, in, in the industry. And uh, take it with a grain of salt. I rebuild, I recreate, and I continue to move. You know, because you cannot allow uh, these type of uh, people to, to define who you are. You know. Mm-hmm. Vincent, I already talked. Uh, I already talked about uh, a paragraph in Tommy Shuba's story today about you and it said uh, I talked about the U.S. Marine part the other part of that sentence where Tom Shuba is identifying you is as an Englewood na- uh, native Englewood being a community in Chicago on the south side of Chicago and I know it must be uh, breaking your heart to see all the violence that's been happening uh, in Chicago over the last couple of weeks the shootings the carnage uh, little kids getting shot getting caught in the middle of crossfire What's your sense of what Chicago or the state or the country should do to bring down the violence? You know, it's, it's, it's really a tough call. Um, the leaders, the leadership in here in Chicago, you know, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of times, uh, so I'll say so-called leaders, they'll speak out and say, no, we shouldn't do that. You know, that's, you know, against the ACLU or that's, uh, a human right issue, et cetera. But, you know, uh, I moved back to Chicago in 93 and, and every year, every summer that rolls around, this is the norm. 
and this is the norm because no one wants to take the ownership of again attacking and addressing the issue at hand and i think the issue at hand in the city of chicago and some other urban cities uh when innocent bystanders are getting killed especially our young babies you know and um and we just see the like you said the the malice of behavior and uh no respect for life this is domestic terrorist to me you know i think that um if we call it what it is you know on u.s soil uh domestic terrorists and we address it in that manner um i think we'll clean up a lot of this um a lot of the, the shootings and murders and, and the crime that's going on uh, toward uh, innocent bystanders. And um, at the end of the day, I saw a young man post on, on social media saying that, you know, this, this weekend, 4th of July weekend, PSA, make sure you're not letting your kids play out front, not playing on the porch, not playing in the public parks, not playing uh, in the backyards, alleyways, and pretty much the ending almost of like to be safe in the home because a lot of these murders are happening while people are inside their home, straight bullets. So, uh, where do we go? You're not even safe at home. So again, I think that we need to address it for what it is. And, uh, you know, the, the city of Chicago won't say it. The mayor probably won't say it. But bring the feds in. I mean, at some point in time, you know, it has to stop or history is just going to continue to repeat itself. Do you trust... Go ahead, finish your thought. Do you trust the feds under Donald Trump? Could you repeat that again? Yes, I said at some point they have to maybe bring the feds in. And I said, do you trust the feds under Donald Trump? That's tough. <laughs> you know, when you say it like that, um, my initial reaction would be no. But again, where do we go? What's, what, what we're doing now is not working. So I trust another alternative. I do trust that. And I trust that, you know, people in a leadership position will do the right thing. I mean, uh, community, uh, families out here in the city of Chicago, if you know who the shooters are, do the right thing. It could have been your son. It could have been your grandbaby. It could have been your little brother, sister. I mean, we cannot allow these people to continue to terrorize the neighborhoods. Uh, at some point, you know, in whether it's Inglewood, Gresham, other neighborhoods in Chicago, we have to stand up. But it's not just a South Side and West Side issue. It is a Chicago issue. So, you know, the people on the North Side, the people downtown, we're all affected by this, you know. Every time innocent life is taken, we all gonna share the blunt of this in some way, some form, some fashion. 
and uh, we just have to address the issue. Um, you know, poverty is violent. Um, a young man uh, said that once, and um, it's true. We got to get people. You know, we got to address our people in the community. <clears throat> we got to obviously uh, start getting these people out of poverty, uh, encouraging them, getting them more jobs, uh, more opportunities, and um, that would help as well. But you know, uh, evil is evil. Um, it has a long history. It's not going anywhere. I mean, going away anytime soon. But we can address it. We can, you know, work toward diffusing it and uh, whatever it takes. You know, like Malcolm X says, at this point, by any means necessary, we have to get the shooters off the streets because I'm tired of looking at the news. I'm tired of picking up the paper and uh, seeing a three-year-old boy shot and killed. I got a three-year-old grandson. Could have been my grandson. You know, a lot of pain. Uh, let's try we to... We have to work to do better. Uh, yeah, let's try to uh, end the, the conversation on a little more of an upbeat note. Uh, I'm looking at your picture, and there's no way a man this young and good-looking could be a grandfather. Uh, and uh, so <laughs> <laughs> just thought I'd throw that out at you, Vincent. Uh, again, the picture of Vincent in today's bright one in the Sun-Times on Thomas Huber's story. Uh, Vincent, before I let you go, you're a big basketball fan. Uh, you worked for the Jordan brand uh, several years ago, so you know the game pretty well. Do you think there will be an NBA bubble season in July. Do you think the NBA is going to pull back in the face of the coronavirus? Uh, I definitely, you know, I believe that uh, there would no, there would not be uh, an NBA season uh, like they would like to have. Uh, I think uh, the commissioner is kidding himself if he thinks that the NBA players or the NBA itself is immune to what has already been a dismal sports year <laughs> mm. with, uh, you know, Major League Baseball not even playing a game yet. Uh, they just resumed back soccer, but that's at a very uh, cautious pace. So to gather all these people down there in Orlando, Florida, which, you know, the particular the state that's just had a, a huge spike in coronavirus uh, patients. Uh, I just think that uh, <clears throat> these guys are not uh, looking at protecting not only the players, but staff, uh, other people uh, that work for these uh, organizations in, in general, uh, you know, trainers, um, uh, reporters, the media, because they're going to have to go down there and cover. And so I, I just think the right thing to do is, uh, is again, is to just let this season uh, be what it is, uh, an ending, and move on to uh, 2021 mm-hmm. in the NBA season. Yeah. But, you know, money's involved, you know, ESPN and everybody's, you know, pushing toward it, you know, and not looking at the welfare of the players or, again, the staff or the media itself. So we'll see how it play out. But I don't think there's going to be an uh, uh, ending to the NBA or them crowning the champion.
Mm. That's just my opinion. And I go with that based off of uh, what the uh, physicians and medical people are saying right now. Yeah, Adam Silver, the commissioner, seemed to be backtracking a little bit today. I saw the comments that you alluded me to and uh, read them before we went on the air. Yeah, a little bit of backtracking there. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, you're right and they may call it off. Vincent, thanks so much for taking the time to come talk to me. It's the second time you've been on the show, and uh, we'll bring you back again. Thank right? you. All right, very good. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Vincent Norman. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.